Last week we began a series called Imagining the Kingdom. Uh, we're, we, we began in Hebrews 11. We're going to finish Hebrews 11 today. We'll continue in the series, but, but um, I think it's foundational for our understanding of what I mean by uh, imagining the kingdom. The title of this particular message is The Necessity of Imagination for Patience. The Necessity of Imagination for Patience. And uh, for those that think I should do a Mother's, Mother's Day message on Mother's Day, well, moms have to have a lot of patience. So there, I've got it covered. Um, <laughs> lucky coincidence. How's that? Um, it, it is Mother's Day, but it is the Lord's Day first, just for the record. And so that becomes our priority. But uh, Hebrews uh, 11, um, I'm going to begin by reading the first three verses, but then we will pick up where we had left off in the chapter last week. So if you would join me in verse 1. Um, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what it was visible. We'll pause there, and if you would join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I come in my weakness. I come, Lord, uh, recognizing that whatever preparations I have done, whatever thoughts I have, are entirely incomplete and unable to help apart from your Holy Spirit who enlivens them, who fills them out and completes them. So I ask that in Christ Jesus you would do that for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Filmmaker Lance Oppenheim tells the story of Mario Salcedo. I I think I'm saying his name right. Mario Salcedo. Uh, In his, get this, 10-minute documentary, 10 and a half minutes, but who's counting, titled The Happiest Guy in the World. Uh, Apparently, there's not much more than 10 minutes worth of happiness that they could have talked about, but he's the happiest guy in the world. Super Mario, as they call him, decided to escape the life that the rest of us lead. And for the last 20 years at the time of this making, longer now, he has lived uninterrupted on a cruise ship, of course, until the pandemic at about year 21, Uh, He says, I don't have to take out the garbage. I don't have to clean. I don't have to do laundry. I have eliminated all those non-value-added activities, and I just have all the time in the world to do what I like to do. He says, I'm the happiest guy in the world, being alone. He was He has been married and divorced all on the ship, never leaving. Mario doesn't like to go on group outings to islands or other activities because he wants to be the only one making decisions about his time. Never mind that he's on a ship with thousands of other people who are going to the same place and eating the same food. If asked, what's next? He answers, a human being always has to have some goal to be achieved. In my case... I really have exhausted, I don't know what else is out there, I, I don't know, I, I just don't have any more. So I guess the only thing I have to look forward to are just the new ships. And then as if trying to convince himself, that's okay, that's, that's okay. Oliver Berkman, author of 4,000 Weeks, offers a different approach. 
after arguing for the power of patience, he proposes that to harness the power of patience, the first thing we must do, listen to this, the first thing we must do is develop a taste for having problems. (laughs) Sound familiar? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything, James 1. Or how about Paul? Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Romans Berkman writes, Behind our urge to race through every obstacle or challenge in an effort to get it dealt with, there's usually the unspoken fantasy that you might one day finally reach the state of having no problems whatsoever. As a result, most of us treat the problems we encounter as doubly problematic. First, problematic first, because of whatever specific problem we're facing, And second, because we seem to believe, if only subconsciously, that we shouldn't have problems at all. We shouldn't have problems at all. Now, I might just interject. That might explain why we have so much difficulty in relationships, because we expect them to be problem-free too. And they aren't. Bergman continues, Yet the state of having no problems is obviously never going to arrive, and more to the point, you wouldn't want it to. Because a life, listen, a life devoid of problems. Now, this guy's not a believer, by the way, that that I know of. I mean, he might be secretly somewhere in his life, but I I don't think he is. But he says, because a life devoid of all problems would contain nothing worth doing and would therefore be meaningless. Because what is a problem, really? The most generic definition is simply that it's something that demands that you address yourself to it. And if life contained no such demands, there'd be no point in anything. Then he suggests this. Once you give up on the unattainable goal of eradicating all your problems, it becomes possible to develop an appreciation for the fact that life just is a process of engaging with problem after problem, giving each one the time it requires, that the presence of problems in your life, in other words, isn't an impediment to a meaningful existence, but the very substance of one, the very substance of a meaningful existence. Now, the author of Hebrews beat Berkman to that perspective on life, I would say. And we'll see that today. In particular, the life of faith in Christ in his kingdom, happens in a world that opposes it. And the author of Hebrews, which, by the way, if you just like interesting things to think about, I think it was Luke, because there's a lot of good data to support that. This whole book on the subject. Who cares? But, maybe. But the author pictures a goal which will never run out in this life. In particular... The life of faith in Christ's kingdom, it won't, it won't, not only won't run out, it will continue. If, if, as Super Mario says, a human being always has to have some goal to be achieved, well, Hebrews 11 shows us a life toward a goal that we both actively pursue and which will never run out of needing to be pursued. 
We actively pursue it, and it never runs out of needing to be pursued. Your kingdom come. It will always be our prayer. Why? Well, because we are to seek that his kingdom comes. It has already come. It will come increasingly in our lives as we do his will on earth as it is in heaven. And it will one day come in fullness. We'll never run out of needing to seek his kingdom come, to pray his kingdom come. If, in the words of Berkman, that the presence of problems in your life isn't an impediment to a meaningful existence, but the very substance of one, then living for the city built by God, the new Jerusalem that we read about last week in Hebrews 11, the life of faith, if, if that living, that life, is the perfection of a very meaningful existence. We're going to explore the necessity of imagination for patience under three headings. First, the necessity of imagination for patience. Second, the resurrection, the future, and patience. And third, the resurrection, the present, and patience. So let's begin under that first heading, the necessity of imagination for patience. And by the way, a little bit of this is review from last week because I think it's essential that we remind ourselves of some of those things before we move forward. If you want to get expanded on that, then go back and listen to last week's message online. Last week we talked about the fact that we all live according to what we imagine. Not only do we imagine things before they become real, I mean someone had to imagine the telephone, someone had to imagine a car, but we also create a certain reality by what we imagine to be true. For example, if we imagine that someone doesn't like us, well, we treat them in such a way as to distance ourselves from them. And it becomes a self-fulfilling sort of prophecy. The way we interact with them. We're a little cautious. And they begin to think, well, obviously there's something wrong here. And then they treat us that way. And it goes on and on and on. As noted last week, the most widely sold story in history is the Bible. But the most successful story in history is that of money. People will spend their lives accumulating stacks of paper or what is now merely digital data. What value does it have? Only the value that our collective imagination believes that it has according to the story we've been told. Money has no intrinsic value. For example, if you're shipwrecked or on on a deserted island, uh, would you rather have a suitcase full of money or a suitcase full of food? Probably go for the food, I suspect. How we live is entirely rooted in the stories we believe. How we imagine reality to be. That's how we live. If we believe the story of money more than we believe the story of Christ's coming kingdom, while we may go to church on Sunday, the money story will have a greater impact on our lives. Some of us will go to lunch today, um, taking my wife out and meeting my mom and stepdad, and my son's coming along. We're having lunch today. We'll go there. We'll pull out a piece of plastic at the end of the meal, swipe it, And others who imagine that this has value will give us food for that. We'll be able to pay the bill at the end of the month because we work all week. So the company that we work for will send some digital information to our bank. And our bank will then say that we have this money which the restaurant people, the utility companies, and the rest of society all imagine has value. And it does. Unless and until one day enough of us stop imagining that it does. And then it won't anymore. Money is the most successful story ever told because more people believe it than any other. But the gospel is the most powerful story ever told. Yet until we believe it enough to live it, it remains powerless. 
if we do live it, if we truly believe it is of greatest value, it will transform our lives more than any other story. And that is the story we are to be writing with our lives as a community. That's what we seek to do as a body of people, is to live out the story of the gospel. And Hebrews 11 is all about that story. It begins by telling us that faith is the confidence that what we hope for, the city to come, which it defines later as that hope, the city to come, what we hope for, the new Jerusalem as called elsewhere, the fullness of Christ's reign, we might say, that what we hope for is sure. It is the evidence, that faith is the evidence of what we don't see now, but is more real than what we do see now. The kingdom of God is more real, though we don't see it presently, than what we do see. By faith, we live according to the story that Christ is king and will return to reign in fullness. We live now speculating on the kingdom. Now, as we imagine a world in which Christ is king and we live accordingly, we will increasingly experience his kingdom now. The already, not yet, you've, you, you've probably heard that expression about the kingdom of uh, God. It's already and it's not yet. Christ came and he's king. He is already king. He reigns on high. But he is not yet fully king. I mean, just ask the world. They don't think he's king. And so there's already and not yet. But the already, not yet aspects of the kingdom are not fixed sums. They're not set in stone. Well, there's this much already and there's that much not yet. I mean, if you do nothing with what you've been given, they're fixed sums. But as we do His will on earth as it is in heaven, the already increases and the not yet decreases. Now, of course, it won't fully decrease or fully increase until that day. And we live for that day. It is the life of faith in the gospel that forges in us a new imagination by which we are to live, and thereby we are able to harness the power of a sanctified imagination. Now that's, that's all for the review from last week, uh, but that's important to remember so we can walk forward. We often refer to Hebrews 11, I've done it, you've probably done it, if you've been around the faith long, as the faith hall of fame. How many have heard that expression, the faith hall of fame? I'm going to suggest that that is largely unhelpful. Uh, And yes, I've said it, but it is unhelpful. Few who visit the Baseball Hall of Fame, for example, leave thinking that they should imitate those whose lives that they had just learned about. Like, if I go to the Baseball Hall of Fame, I'm impressed, but I'm not going to start training for baseball. I'm 60. Let's run the math on that. We're not getting anywhere, okay? I'm not going to make the Hall of Fame, okay? I'm not going to play professional sports. Most of you won't either. But this chapter isn't written that we might admire all those people that are listed in it. It's written that we might live like them. So it's not a hall of fame. It's a story that we are a part of, and that's its point. These believers were facing a crisis of faith concerning Christ's kingdom rule. Their faith was being challenged because their experience dominated their imagination. Experience was pretty stinky according to chapter 10, verse 32 through 35. These are the verses just preceding our chapter 11. The author reminds them of the persecution that they had suffered, and he commends them for how they had endured. And he says if they hold on to their confidence in what is unseen, that they will be richly rewarded. They, according to those verses, joyfully accepted the confiscation of their goods, their property. 
the soldiers, the government, coming in, taking what they owned from them, their lands, chasing them off. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's going to take a pretty vivid imagination to joyfully accept that. You're going to have to imagine something else is taking place than what is taking place by all outward appearance in order to joyfully accept it. You're going to have to have a greater hope than what you can see in the moment and put your faith in that. Amen? It takes a sanctified imagination, a vision of a coming kingdom. Then he moves to their present situation in verses 36 through 39. He says, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised for in just a little while. He who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So to help these believers endure, the author helps them in two ways. First, he reminds them of the history of our family of faith, Hebrews 11. He reminds them of the history of our family of of faith. But then, at the beginning of chapter 12, he fuels their imagination, casting their lives as a race, their faith and their endurance in the faith as a race. We read this in chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of, of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This unseen reality described with vivid visual detail, though metaphorical, is very real. It's not only a race, it's, it's a marathon. And there are grandstands, apparently toward the end where you would have them, so they can cheer you in as you come along the route. The grandstands are filled with the great cloud of witnesses. That is all those who have gone before us, chapter 11 and more, who are now in the stands, hidden by the clouds, but just as near, watching us. You might think that someone in heaven is too busy to pay attention to what we're doing down here. I've thought that before. Not an uncommon thought. But actually quite the opposite. There is nothing more important for angels or saints in heaven to watch than us. According to Paul in Ephesians 3, this is the culmination of the ages. He tells the Ephesians that through the church, God's manifold wisdom and purpose in creation is being made known in the heavenly realms. You see, as they watch, they're beginning to understand what God is doing. Now, we look at the church, and what do we see? A mess. Right? We don't have the right imagination. They look at the church and they see God's purpose and wisdom being unfolded. Now, if we want to see things rightly, we have to start imagining what they see. Get a sanctified imagination. Because frankly, when I look at the church, guess what? I see what you see. (laughs) 
I mean, I know, you look at me and see the mess. I look at you and see the mess. It's turnabout's fair play. It's just the way it works. We have to think like they think. Not only are we running in the race, but Jesus ran the course ahead of us, showing us how to do it and showing us that it is possible to endure. That leads to our second point, the resurrection, the future, and patience. Read with me beginning in verse 17. That We left off in verse 16 last week, so we'll pick up in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instruction, instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Now, to be honest, this list in that whole chapter, this list, to me, seems like the most lackluster of all of them. I'm just telling you how it strikes me. Maybe it's never struck you that way. But on closer examination, I don't know that it's so lackluster. Each of these that we just read is based on faith extending beyond death. It's an Easter faith. Abraham's was an Easter faith, Christian faith, kingdom faith is a resurrection faith. Jesus' resurrection, and because of that, our resurrection. Amen? God had promised that through Isaac, Abraham would be the father of many nations. Then God miraculously gave him Isaac. God obviously wants Isaac to live, but then God told Abraham to offer him back to God. Now, Abraham imagined that if God told him to offer Isaac, God must intend to raise him from the dead. And following his sanctified imagination, he set out to do so. And in so doing, his faith was perfected. Then Isaac, on his deathbed, blessed Jacob and Esau. Now, again, in the one case, Isaac was about to die because Abraham was about to offer him up. But now Isaac's about to die because he's old. He's on his deathbed when he blessed Jacob and Esau. And his family was a bona fide mess. I mean, it was more screwed up than any of us. Well, okay, some of us can imagine because we're there. But (laughs) for the rest of us, it's just a messed up family. So you've got Isaac and Esau trying to rip off uh, uh, Jacob from the blessing that Jacob had was, one, told by God would get the blessing, and two, was honestly traded for with his brother. So on two counts, it belongs to Jacob, but they're trying to swindle Jacob out of it. So mom is going to do a double operate, double sting operation. We're going to sting back, and we're going to get the thing stolen, and he's going to think he's giving it to Esau, and he's going to be giving it to you. I mean, nobody's just like, hey, let's all get together and talk about this. No, forget it. In happening. And what does he do? He blesses Jacob and Esau. Now, one might wonder, in the midst of two brothers that want to kill each other, well, at least one of them wants to kill the other, and the other one wanted to do anything to bless the other. What good is blessing them going to do? 
It's kind of like we feel about prayer, oftentimes. What good is prayer going to do in this situation? But Isaac blessed them by faith in God's promise. He didn't say, well, if God wants to bless them, he will. No, he blessed them because he knew the future would be impacted by what he did even after he died. Death cannot stop the working of God. Our faith deals with things that will extend beyond our very lives. Amen? Then next we have Jacob leaning on top of his staff. And that's a picture of someone in their utter weakness as he is dying. He's blessing Joseph's sons. Now, an interesting scene to pick because in a few moments in the next chapter, he blesses all of his own sons. So why does the author of Hebrews pick out that he blesses Joseph's sons? Well, I can't tell you for sure, but I can at least do some holy speculation on the matter. The scene is in Genesis 48, and when he blesses Joseph's sons, it is immediately following when he adopts Joseph's sons. You see, Jacob would have considered Joseph's two Egyptian-born sons as Gentiles. So in order for them to become a part of Israel, they had to be adopted in. And not only did he adopt them in, he gave them this blessing, and it turns out that Ephraim became the head of the ten tribes of Israel, so the vast majority of Israel was the adopted-in Gentiles. In the shadow of the Old Testament. Now, in the reality of the New Testament, guess what? (laughs) It all comes to pass. And I suspect that that's why he includes that, because he's reminding them, hey, we're in a new covenant, and you can see it all the way back here. But who knows? Finally, Joseph. And what does it say there? When he was about to die. You picking up on a theme here? In this whole section, everyone's about to die. When he was about to die, he gave instructions about his bones. Of course, in our modern thinking, we we would say, who cares? What does it matter? But it mattered to Joseph. Joseph is declaring that death cannot stop him from inheriting the promise bodily. His bones are going because there is a resurrection. And they're going to be there. In resurrection. Now why does this matter? Here's why I think it matters. Because of the resurrection, we can be very patient. Since we will be raised, what we do now matters. But we don't have to see the results immediately. Amen? We don't have to see the results immediately. Tertullian makes the connection between our ability to patiently endure trouble, even death, because of the resurrection. Believing the resurrection of Christ, he says, we believe also in our own, for whose sake he both died and rose again. He who goes before us is not to be lamented, though by all means to be longed for. That longing must also, also must be tempered with patience. So it matters because of the resurrection. We can be very patient. What we do now matters. It matters because um, patience is powerful and important. Why? Well, for starters, I would say patience is vitally important because love is patient. That's the first, first, thing, first description of love that we have. In, in 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul starts to say what love is, the very first one, love is patient. So we could say accurately, By implication, anger is impatient. Bitterness is impatient. 
Hostility is impatient. Frustration is impatient. We could go on. If we're going to imagine the presence of Christ's kingdom among us, a kingdom of love, joy, and peace, we're going to have to imagine a world in which patience wins the day. Patience. When I'm driving behind somebody, even if nobody else can hear me, yelling at them, patience matters. It's a true story. Part of why we aren't patient is that we can't imagine it doing any good. We don't have a sanctified imagination. We have to imagine it doing good before we're going to actually believe that it can do good. And I've already gotten rid of your excuse that imagination doesn't matter because the minute you go buy lunch today, you've just proven that it does. Because you're using imaginary money. Many conflicts in marriage would be prevented with patience. Many church problems would be solved with patience on the part of the leaders or patience on the part of the people. Like I say, turnabout's fair play. Most of our impatience is ultimately directed at God. God is patient. Tertullian explains that patience is how God works. Quote, God himself in the very first place is an example of patience who scatters equally over just and unjust the bloom of his light. Then Tertullian elaborates on the gifts God gives to worthy and unworthy alike. All this despite ingratitude, idolatry, and the harm that they do to his name and his family. God blesses people who persecute us. He's patient. God is patient. We also have Christ's example of patience. Tertullian goes on to describe patience in terms of Christ's incarnation, saying that when God concealed himself in human flesh, he, quote, imitated nothing of man's impatience. That was interesting. He imitated, see, he took on flesh, but he imitated nothing of our impatience, even in the taking on of flesh. He goes on, God suffers himself to be conceived in a mother's womb and awaits the time for birth and, when born, bears the delay of growing up. And when grown up, is not eager to be recognized, but is furthermore abusive only to himself and is baptized by his own servant and repels with words alone the assaults of the tempter, having been trained to exercise the absolute forbearance of offended patience. We would be foolish to think that we don't need such patience. We need to imagine that we're in a marathon. And if you've ever attempted anything like a marathon, you know that it requires endurance, patient endurance, because you will hit a wall at some point. Not only can death not stop the promise, suffering cannot either. And that leads to our third point, the resurrection, the present, and patience. If you would read with me beginning in verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. 
By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Now that took some imagination. Hey guys, we're going to kill a lamb. And then we're going to put the blood on the doors. And then the destroyer's not coming in. Oh, you say, but God told them, right, but you had to believe it. You had to act on it. And that takes some serious imagination to actually believe that what God said will work and be true. In Hebrews 3, Jesus was set parallel to and in contrast with Moses. Jesus was faithful as Moses was, but as superior to Moses as a son is to a servant. And we read here in Hebrews 11 that Moses' parents were not afraid of the king's edict. Jesus' parents were spared from King Herod's edict to kill the baby. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God because he was looking forward to his reward. Likewise, Jesus became one with us and was mistreated right along with us because he was looking for his reward. As believers, we are blessed if we are persecuted for the sake of justice, and we cannot fear the king's edict either. Like Moses, Jesus kept the Passover. But in a superior way, Jesus kept it with his own blood that truly meant that we would not be touched by death forever. Verse 29 in our Hebrews 11 chapter, By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Now Paul, in Corinthians, compares the passing through the Red Sea to baptism. This was likely a well-known metaphor for baptism. These suffering Hebrew believers likely are seeing this as analogous to the beginning of their own journey as believers. They're crossing through the Red Sea. They're coming into Christ in baptism. And what follows that verse of crossing the Red Sea is a picture of the Christian life. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell and the ar- after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. I mean, the Israelites didn't just waltz into the promised land. And we'd like to think, get saved, promised land, troubles are over. That's not how it worked for them. It's not how it works for us. It required faith. There were giants in the land, and there are giants in the land today. We are called to inherit the kingdom, and it will likewise require faith. I mean, Jericho. Talk about needing an imagination. Hey, guys. Let's march around it for seven days. And then on the seventh day, we're going to march seven times. Then we're going to make a whole bunch of noise and rattle things and clang things together. Now you try imagining that's going to work against an army. Like I'm like, can I get at the back of the line? Because I'm not sure how safe it's going to be up at the front. I can at least turn tail and run. But it's a picture of prayer. We do what seems like nothing to the world. And often seems like nothing to ourselves. And yet God uses it to deliver whole cities into his kingdom. And if we actually thought that it was something, we'd probably have a lot more people show up at prayer meetings, right? (laughs) But we don't. So we dismiss it. Just like marching around a city. Nobody would use that for a strategy. I'm not recommending it either for the record. And then Rahab, she had an imagination. She cast her fate with the Israelites based only on what she had heard about 
the fact that God was on their side. I mean, never mind they win wars by going out and making a bunch of noise, blowing their kazoos or whatever. While we read the list that follows, remember that it is written to a people who are instructed to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that, this is who it's written to. It's the people that have been taught to pray that way. Verse 32, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered or literally worked justice, and gained what was promised and shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and rooted foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection." Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They they were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. Do you notice that in verse 33 it says they gained what was promised, and in verse 39 it says none of them received what had been promised? Well, I don't think the, the author had a slip of mind. <laughs> I forgot I already said this, and I'm going to say that. No. It's intentional, of course. You see, in all their labors for the kingdom, they would come out victorious on occasion. They would... I, They would actually work justice. They would actually conquer kingdoms. They would actually shut the mouths of lions. They would get delivered out of a fiery furnace. Yet, at the end of the day, they died not having received the fullness of the promise. Of course, because the kingdom they needed to conquer most was in their own heart, as it is with us. That came through Christ's death and the subsequent work of the Spirit in our lives. It's like Jesus himself, who on many occasions walked right through the crowd wanting to stone him, yet one day he was crucified, received the promise, died not having received the promise until resurrection. Facing powerful kingdoms and working justice, as in verse 33, brings the persecution and mistreatment of verses 37 and 38. What enabled the forerunners of our faith that we read about in this chapter, what enabled them to endure all this? Verse 35 tells us they were desiring to gain an even better resurrection. An even better resurrection. And then we read in verse 39 and 40, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God has planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. They only together with us. I'm I'm reminded of the cathedrals built in the Middle Ages. You know, before you had tractors. The other day, how many 
tons of concrete were brought to one building downtown one day, a bunch of 260-some-odd cement trucks lined up, dropping off concrete. What's that? 650 cement trucks? Yeah, she was reading this to me. I don't remember the details, right? 650 cement trucks going down. They, they didn't build cathedrals that way. Just as an example, construction of the Toledo Cathedral in Spain, which is just a, a gorgeous specimen of a cathedral. It began in 1226 and finished in 1493. That's 267 years. That's approaching, assuming a life of about 30 years for a craftsman to, to be able to work. You know, time he matures, time he learns the trade, and then he's working, and then he's too old to do it, you know, back in that day especially. That's approaching 10 generations of craftsmen. You see, they were all working on something they knew they would not finish. They would need us. Just like we need them. And we need the ones that come after us. For this generation and the next. But we are participating in something that we did not start. And we will likely not finish it. It is beyond our lifetimes. It will require patience. I think part of the trouble in the church today, and you know, not that anybody's asking me what I think on these matters, but I do think part of the trouble in the church today is that we're trying to accomplish the mission right now. We're going to start a church and take the world for Jesus. And God uses us in our folly. I mean, we've all been used, and I'm grateful for that. But I think we'd do better to realize that we're not likely to take the world for Jesus in our generation. But if we will do well and, and, and live our lives well, we'll make a difference for the coming generation. See, the reality is the world doesn't care what we build, what our shows look like, or anything else. They care about our lives. And that takes time, and that is difficult. But that's what must be worked on. Not only does the sure hope of resurrection transform our grieving in death, it transforms our living in life. It transforms our grieving in death. It transforms our living in life. Amen? We have to understand that we are in a marathon. And in this marathon, there will be difficulties and troubles. We need the patience of God. Some of those difficulties are going to come through the people in our lives. Our spouse, children, parents. You're going to need patience. Imagine the patience of Christ growing up, learning the law like anyone from the teachers who knew very little <laughs> compared to him. Putting up with the disciples' stunts and unbelief. Praying for the forgiveness of those who were crucifying him. We have to engage our imaginations with the marathon of faith, with the resurrection and reward that we will receive in order to have the power of patience to transform our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, make us like your Son. 
Help us to recognize that we are working on something that started long before us and will be finished long after us. That just like those who came before, their lives and their work would not be finished without us, so likely our work will not be finished without them and those who come after us. Remind us that we are working on things that will not be finished in our lifetime. That we have a goal that will, on the one hand, always spur us to act now to make a difference and yet never be fully accomplished so that we always have something to press forward in. In Jesus' name, amen.